Graham Smith. I'm the head of obstetrics and gynecology at Queen's University and the Kingston Health Science Centre here in Kingston, Ontario. We established the Mothers Program to provide a reliable source of information about pregnancy on the internet with the goal to improve mothers' health through education, research, and screening. The Mothers Podcasts are an extension of that. Today, we're going to be discussing postpartum contraception, and our guests are Dr. Ashley Waddington, who is an assistant professor and the director of the Contraceptive Advice Research and Education Fellowship Program at Queen's University and the Kingston Health Science Centre, and Dr. Melinda Radoa is an obstetrician gynecologist who's doing the CARE Fellowship. Ashley, Melinda, welcome and thank you for agreeing to speak with us. Thank you for having us. So I recognize that when you have a newborn baby, aren't sleeping, maybe breastfeeding, have sore nipples, maybe stressed and recovering from a vaginal delivery or cesarean section, sexual activity or intimacy may be the last thing on one's mind. If an individual isn't breastfeeding, they may have had a period six to eight weeks after delivery, which means they released an egg a couple of weeks before that, which means they could get pregnant. And if they're breastfeeding, it's completely unpredictable when they will ovulate. So what do you say to patients? So that's very true. I always make sure to tell patients if they're not breastfeeding, then absolutely they can ovulate very early, as soon as three to four weeks after delivery. So it's always important to have an early contraception plan. And we're always happy to talk about birth control, even in the weeks leading up to delivery, so that someone has a plan in place when they are postpartum and are tired and it may not be the first thing on their mind. For those patients who are breastfeeding, it is true that breastfeeding may actually inhibit or suppress ovulation. However, this is only true if certain criteria are met, and it's important that people be aware of this. So ovulation is only reliably suppressed if women are less than six months postpartum and exclusively or almost exclusively breastfeeding, which means that all of their feeds are breast milk aside from some small supplements like vitamins, water, or juice. It's also important that they haven't had a return of their periods because if periods have returned, then breastfeeding is absolutely not suppressing ovulation. For women who really don't want to get pregnant right away and feel that it's important for them to have adequate birth control, they actually can start birth control even sooner than six months um, if they're worried about the chance of pregnancy. And there's lots of safe options for birth control while breastfeeding. And we'll talk a little bit about those further. So what are the options and and what information should they consider in making their decision? So the good news is we have a long menu of options for birth control methods that people can choose. Um, And the vast majority of them are very safe to use, even in the early weeks postpartum. Um, A couple of things to keep in mind is that there are a few options that are limited in the first few weeks, and specifically those would include options that contain estrogen. So many birth control pills, as well as the birth control patch and vaginal ring contain estrogen, and that can increase your risk of forming a blood clot in your legs or your lungs. And so because that risk is already elevated in the immediate postpartum period, we usually recommend that people hold off on using those methods in the first few weeks after delivery. But The other options that are available to them include things like barrier methods like condoms, um, or they can use other hormonal methods that don't contain estrogen, including the birth control shot, which they get once every three months. They can use the newer birth control implant, which can be placed at the time of delivery and can stay in place for up to three years, or they can use a type of birth control pill that does not contain estrogen, which is sometimes referred to as the mini pill, but what we usually like to refer to as the progestin-only pill. So have you seen a trend in what people are choosing? 
Yeah, in the contraception clinic, we're seeing that more and more people are leaning towards longer acting options. So what we call LARC methods or long acting reversible methods. So this includes things like the IUD, which are super duper popular. The advantages to the IUD um, are that there are two forms. There's a hormonal form, which contains levonorgestrel, and there's also a non-hormonal form, which utilizes copper. And those have different side effects and um, benefit profiles, but the hormonal IUDs may really help people with their periods as well, making periods less painful and also significantly lighter or taking away periods completely. So for that reason, those are really, really popular options. The other advantage is it's sort of a set it and forget it type of model. You go and see your physician, you have the IUD placed and it's good for five years and you really don't have to remember to take something every day or every three months. So it's really, really easy. The other newer option, as Ashley was mentioning, is the contraceptive implant, which is called the Nexplanon. And that's also a really, really good choice for people. And I think it's going to become more and more popular postpartum because it can even be placed before someone leaves hospital from the discharge after their delivery. So that's really nice because you go home with birth control already in place. So what are the failure rates for the different options? So just like there's a wide variety of options, the different options have many uh, differences between them, including failure rates. So the nice thing about the long-acting reversible methods that Melinda was just talking about is that they have very low failure rates. And the reason for this is because, as she said, they're sort of fix it and forget it. So once you have your IUD in place or your implant in place, you don't have to worry about uh, taking a pill every day or remembering to go to the pharmacy to refill prescriptions or, you know, to get a shot every three months or anything like that, they're just in place doing their job and you don't really require a lot of maintenance. So failure rates for the implant are actually extremely low. It's the most effective birth control method that's available in Canada. In fact, it's more effective than something like having your tubes tied or even a vasectomy. Um, In 11 clinical trials with the uh, Nexplanon product, they had no pregnancies in any of the participants. So it's extremely effective. IUDs are also extremely effective with failure rates of about one to two in a thousand. Now, other options like birth control pills have a failure rate of about 8 in 100, meaning that if 100 people use that method for a year, about 8 people will get pregnant using that method. And the shot that I mentioned earlier is a little bit better than that uh, with a failure rate of about 3 to 5 out of 100. So again, if 100 people are using that method, they may have 3 to 5 pregnancies during that time. Condoms are excellent, and we always recommend them, particularly for uh, prevention of sexually transmitted infections, but they also have a higher failure rate. This is because it requires a lot of effort to use a condom every single time and never have one that accidentally slips off or becomes damaged or, um, you know, was a defective condom in the first place. So the failure rate for people who are using condoms is about 15 out of 100. So if 100 people use that method for a year, about 15 of those people will get pregnant in a year. So effectiveness is just one of the differences between the methods, but it's certainly an important one and something that should be discussed if you're talking about your contraception options. I've had patients report that after a previous pregnancy, when starting on the combined oral contraceptive pill, it had an impact on the quantity of milk production. Any thoughts about that? Yeah, so there is some evidence to suggest that combined methods containing estrogen do result in a decrease in milk production. They don't affect the quality of the breast milk, but can, in theory, affect the quantity. However, usually this decrease in supply is transient, and for many women who continue to feed, they'll actually note that the volumes of breast milk will sort of return to baseline over time. If women are concerned about that, however, the progesterone-only options or non-hormonal options don't have any impact 
impact upon breast milk quality or quantity. So those can be good alternatives. Is, is there a time point after delivery where starting on the oral contraceptive pill shouldn't impact milk production? So once breast milk supply has been well-established and feeding is well-established, it probably has less of an impact. Generally, we would say it's reasonable to start a combined method sort of around six weeks, which is when most people will follow up with either their family practitioner or their obstetrician, gynecologist, or midwife for their postpartum follow-up. Another reason to wait until at least three, if not six weeks postpartum, is because we know that combined contraceptives containing estrogen also increase the risk of blood clots to the legs or the lungs, and the risk for clots is highest in the first weeks postpartum. So we actually would never recommend starting a combined pill in the first three weeks postpartum, whether a woman is breastfeeding or not. Are there any useful websites that people can look at to help them with the decisions? Absolutely. So one of our favorite websites um, has been created by the Society of Obstetricians and Gynecologists of Canada, and that's sexnu.ca. And that's you like the letter U as opposed to the word Y-O-U. They Um, also have a great website called It's a Plan, which can help you decide which method is best for you and how best to stay on schedule with your method and what to do if you ever miss a pill or don't pick up your prescription on time. We'll maybe put those uh, links in the the notes for the podcast so that people can uh, hunt them down. Does, Does timing of another pregnancy impact on their choice? For example, if someone is contemplating another pregnancy, say in the next year or so, does it make sense to get an IUD that might last five years? So that's a great question, um, and it's one that we hear fairly often because people have the impression if they have a long-acting method like an IUD that lasts for five years or an implant that lasts for three years, that they have to leave it in for that entire duration of time. But in fact, you can have any of those methods removed and your fertility will go right back to normal at any point during its lifespan. So if you don't like the method or because you want to try for another pregnancy, you can have it removed whenever you're ready to do so. It should be noted that all contraceptive methods are considered completely reversible other than those that are surgical, like tubal ligation or vasectomy. Um, And so for the vast majority of methods, people's fertility returns back to normal uh, within weeks of discontinuing the method. The one exception to that can be the injectable contraceptive called Depo-Provera, which can sometimes have a lag of three to six months if people have been long-term users. And so anytime that we do contraception counseling, we do speak with individuals about what their future uh, childbearing goals are and what their sort of uh, lifetime plan is for reproduction uh, to see if we can direct them one way or another. But we do see a lot of people choosing the long-acting reversible methods, even if they're planning to use or to try for another pregnancy within a year or two, uh, because they are so... uh, reliable, they're so effective, they require so little maintenance, that they're really convenient for people. And in fact, even the cost ends up being about equivalent if they leave it in for about a year or so. So some of these long-acting methods, as you can imagine, cost a bit more when you pay out of pocket. But compared to the cost of, for example, using a birth control pill, they even out at about the one to one and a half year mark. So if you were choosing based on the expense of something, if you were planning to leave it in place for one to one and a half years, then you're actually better off financially to use one of the long acting methods, even if you don't use it for its full lifespan. So you identified that when you come off uh, most of these uh, different uh, methods, you could get pregnant uh, right away. But should people delay getting pregnant for a period of time? 
So no, there's no evidence that people have to delay getting pregnant. We just always talk with people about making sure that your body is healthy for pregnancy. So we recommend that patients start um, prenatal vitamin with folic acid, ideally three months before they actually conceive. The other things to keep in mind are just maintaining a healthy lifestyle. So if that means things like quitting smoking or trying to maintain a more healthy body weight, we're getting into a better exercise routine. Those are all things that will improve your outcomes with the pregnancy itself. For women who have more complex medical conditions for which they may be at higher risk for pregnancy, it would be important to speak with their doctors and their specialists and see if any of their medications can be optimized or if they even should see a high-risk obstetrician to talk about preconception counseling and see if there's any things that could be adjusted prior to getting pregnant to make the pregnancy healthier. So it would be important to try and have all those things sorted out before someone stops their birth control method so they don't actually get pregnant before everything has been optimized. Any other thoughts or advice to pregnant individuals or their partners related to postpartum contraception? The only additional thought that I have is that this is something that people should consider talking to their healthcare providers about before they deliver. Um, as we all know, life gets really busy with a newborn in the home, and it can be hard to think about making an appointment to have this conversation and make these arrangements uh, when you're in the throes of the early weeks postpartum. And so in an ideal scenario, if you speak to your care provider before delivery and you have a plan ready to go, it just makes it so much easier for you um, to go ahead and initiate the contraceptive method of your choice, uh, including those that can be started, as we mentioned, immediately in the hospital before you even go home. So you don't even have to think about it for a couple of weeks or a couple of years uh, after you go home. So have these conversations early. It can be easy to forget about birth control when you're pregnant because you haven't needed birth control uh, for at least nine months. And so to get back into having that discussion with your care provider is a great idea before delivery. Thank you, Ashley, Melinda, for taking the time to join us to discuss pregnancy and postpartum contraception. I want to thank our guests as well as Adelaide Burroughs who helped to produce this podcast and for those behind the scenes. We'll put links to more information on this and other topics on our website, www.themothersprogram.ca. The Mother's Program is all one word. If you have any comments, suggestions, or ideas for topics or people that we should interview, please use the contact section on our website. The next podcast, we will be speaking with Dr. Andrea Guerin about prenatal genetic screening and testing. Until then, be safe.